scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I will be reading from the Revised Standard Version. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he journeyed, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed about him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The word of God for the people of God. So uh, a few weeks ago, when many of us were up at camp, we had a, a bit of a frightening experience. Now, one night early in the week, we were gathered around the campfire and we were singing songs together when one of our counselors uh, started having a seizure. He, he fell to the ground, he started convulsing, his eyes were open, but it was clear that he couldn't see anything. Now, I, I knew what was happening in that moment, I spend a lot of time in hospital rooms. I spend a lot of time standing beside hospital beds. And so I knew exactly what was going on in that moment. I understand a bit of the biology and the, the science behind epilepsy, behind what's happening when somebody has a seizure. I understood that what happened was a, a part of his brain was, was malfunctioning, that there was a sort of electrical storm going on in his brain. When we have a seizure like that, electricity passes through our brain in waves and causes the body to convulse, causes us sometimes to to lose consciousness. I understood exactly what was happening in that moment when he fell to the ground. And yet I have to tell you that it was one of the scariest moments of my entire life. It was one of the most terrifying things that I have ever witnessed. It's difficult to see a friend fall to the ground like that and, and suddenly be taken away from your presence and to feel completely helpless, to feel like it's, it's beyond your power to do anything. It was a, a scary and a terrifying experience. Maybe some of you have had that same experience. Experience. Maybe you know just how scary it is to witness somebody having a, having a seizure. If it was that scary for me, if it was that terrifying for me who has seen seizures before, who understood exactly what was happening, who knew what was going on in my friend's brain in that moment, then imagine how much more terrifying it must have been thousands of years ago for people to witness someone having an epileptic seizure. Imagine how terrifying and mysterious seizures must have been before we had CT scans, before we had neurologists, before we understood a little bit of the science of how the human brain works. Imagine, imagine how strange and terrifying and mysterious seizures must have seemed in the ancient world. People in the ancient world didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand about electrical storms in the brain. When somebody fell down and started convulsing like that, they had no way of explaining from a medical perspective what was happening. And so instead, they reached for supernatural explanations. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the ancient Greeks called epilepsy, they called it the sacred disease. 
Because they didn't understand where it came from, they were convinced that it must be something that was caused by the gods. They believed that when somebody fell down and had a seizure like that, a god or a spirit had placed a finger upon them. Many people believed that epilepsy was a, a sort of a curse. They believed that, that if you had a seizure like that, it meant that one of the gods was angry with you. Or sometimes they said you had been possessed by a demon or that you had been possessed of, of an evil spirit. People in the ancient world didn't understand epilepsy. Some people, on the other hand, some people believed that epilepsy was a gift from the gods. Some people believed it was a, a blessing. Because there are a portion of people, not many, but there is a certain percentage of people who, when they have a seizure, also have spiritual experiences and visions. Some people, when they're having an epileptic seizure, they see things, they feel a presence, they hear voices. And some people in the ancient world believed that when they were having a seizure, they were being allowed to see, to see through the veil that separates the physical world from the material world. Now, of course, we know better. Now we know that, that epilepsy is, is not some mysterious, supernatural thing. We understand that it's often caused by a lesion or a, a brain injury. We understand what's happening in the brain when somebody has a seizure, when they fall to the ground like that. Medical science has pretty well figured out what's happening when, when somebody falls to the ground, like my friend fell to the ground. And all of that new knowledge, all of that new science and understanding has raised a troubling and uncomfortable and difficult question for you and me who are seated in this place today. Some people, now that we know what we know, have asked the question, could it be that the Christian faith as we know it could it be that, that the stained glass windows and the hymns that we sing and the Bible that we read and all of the things that we do in this place, could it be that all of this Christian faith as we know it is nothing more than the lingering side effect of one man's brain malfunction? Could it be that all of this exists the way that it exists because uh, a couple thousand years ago a man fell to the ground and had a seizure? In this morning's scripture reading, we have not just a story that's important to the plot of the Bible, not just important to the Christian faith. The story that Anne read just a moment ago is one of the most important stories in all of human history, the story of a man named Saul. Now, the story begins with Saul traveling on his way to a city called Damascus. Saul, at the time, was a brilliant young man. He was an up-and-coming Jewish leader. He'd been to the finest schools. He had studied at the feet of some of the most respected teachers, but the thing that really set Saul apart, the thing that made his reputation, the thing he was famous for more than anything else was his hatred of the followers of Jesus. Now Saul, as a, as a good Jewish man, as a faithful keeper of the law, he was personally offended by people who claimed to be followers of Jesus. He was offended by the way that they lived. He was offended by the ridiculous stories about a carpenter from Nazareth rising from the dead. He thought the whole thing was ridiculous and blasphemous and heretical and dangerous. And so Saul decided he was going to do everything he could to stamp out the Christian faith before it got started. And so Saul would hunt down Christians. He would kick down the doors of their houses. He would drag them out into the streets, turn them over to the authorities. Saul cheered when they were thrown in prison. He, were cheer he cheered when they were tortured. He cheered when they were executed. Saul was a persecutor of the Christians, the greatest enemy of the Christian faith in that time. And as the story begins this morning, this is where we find Saul. We find him on the road to a city called Damascus because he has heard that there are followers of Jesus there. 
He has heard that some of these people who believe in this resurrection of Jesus have, have made their way to the city of Damascus. And so he is going to see if he can find them, turn them over to the authorities, bring them in, hunt them down. But as Saul is on his way into the city, as he's walking that hot desert road into Damascus, suddenly the strangest and most unexpected thing happens. Suddenly Saul falls to the ground. And his traveling companions can see that his eyes are open, but it's clear that he isn't seeing anything. And a moment later, Saul sits up and he starts to tell his traveling companions that he has had a vision. He says, I saw a brilliant flash of blinding light, he said, and then I heard a voice. I heard the voice of Jesus speaking to me. It is true what the Christians say. Everything that they have told us about Jesus is true. He is risen. He is with us. He is the one God has sent to save the world. Saul continues on to the city of Damascus, but he doesn't, he doesn't persecute the Christians. Instead, he goes to the Christians in Damascus and he asks to be baptized. And then he becomes not just a follower of Jesus, he becomes one of the great leaders of the early church. He becomes an apostle. Saul, better known by his, his Roman name of Paul, he travels around the Roman Empire. He goes from city to city proclaiming the good news of God's love in Jesus, gathering people together, forming churches. He speaks about the Christian faith in front of government leaders and religious authorities. He writes letters to churches. Those letters become what we call the New Testament of the Christian Bible. Saul, more than any other follower of Jesus, shaped the way we thought about Jesus, shaped the way we worship, shaped the Bible that we read, shaped our Christian faith in that time and in this time. And there are people who believe that all of this, all of this happened because Saul had a seizure, specifically an epileptic seizure, more specifically an epileptic seizure of a part of the brain called the temporal lobe. Now scientists have known that there's a, a link between the temporal lobe and religious faith since the 1940s. In the 1940s and 50s, a, a neurologist, a neuroscientist named Wilder Penfield started doing a, a series of experiments. He wanted to know what parts of the brain were responsible for what human functions and activities. And so he literally started taking the tops off of people's heads and then poking their brains with electrodes to see what happened. He would poke the brain over here and the patient would say, well, I feel a tingling in my left foot. And he would poke the brain over here and their right thumb would twitch. And when he poked people in the temporal lobe, the most remarkable things started to happen. The strangest things started to happen. Not in everybody, not even in a percentage of the people whose brains he poked, but in a percentage of a percentage of the people whose brains he poked in the temporal lobe. People started having religious experiences. When he would poke people in the temporal lobe, they would say, I hear church bells ringing. People would say, I see an angel. People would say, I hear a voice speaking to me. People would say, I feel a presence as if there is someone standing beside me. Wilder Penfield became convinced that this particular part of the brain, the temporal lobe, must be responsible for all of the religious thoughts and experiences and feelings that people have. He said when people say that they are experiencing God, what they are really experiencing is a sort of malfunction, a short-circuiting in their, their mental chemistry. They've got some sort of weird thing going on in their temporal lobe. Now, scientists since Wilder Penfield have built on his experiments, and by this point, now that we're 80 years later, the scientists have, have pretty well established that there is some sort of a link between this part of the brain, the temporal lobe, and, and religious experiences and spiritual visions and the things that bring us to places like this, to the point, to the point where some scientists now are willing to say that we have figured out what this whole religion thing is all about. There are some scientists who are willing to say we have now definitively 
basically concluded that there is no such thing as God, that when people say that they're experiencing God, it really is all in their head. There's something wrong. There's some fault in their mental circuitry. There's something wrong with their brains wiring. All of us here today, science tells us now, we're just a little bit brain damaged. And maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Maybe you and I are here in this place today because we're all just a little bit brain damaged. Maybe every experience that we've ever had of God's presence, maybe every time we've heard God's voice, maybe every time we thought that we were drawing close to the spiritual world, that was really just something going funky in our brain's wiring. Maybe they're right. Maybe we'll start putting that on our t-shirts, right? Maybe the next, Pastor Christie, the next set of t-shirts for Court Street United Methodist Church will say, will say on the back, we believe that God loves you, but then again, we all might be just a little bit brain damaged, right? Maybe maybe we could sell those, right? Maybe the scientists are right. Maybe we are just a little bit wrong in the brain. But then again, then again, maybe not. You know, the good news is that that's not the only way of looking at the science. That's not the only way of looking at the evidence. That's not the only way of looking at the data. There are other scientists who believe that science hasn't even come close to proving that there's not a God and that there never will. The other day I was reading an interview with a, a neurobiologist. And he was explaining to a journalist all of these things about the brain's temporal lobe and our body chemistry and seizures and, and visions and spiritual experiences. And the journalist stopped him during the interview and said, wait a minute, does that mean that all of this religion stuff is just in our head? Does that mean that God is just a, a figment of our brain chemistry? And the neuroscientist said no with an exclamation point. He said no. He said science can tell us what happens in somebody's brain when they experience the presence of God. The same way that science can tell us what happens in your brain when you look at a flower or when you fall in love. But this neurobiologist said what science cannot tell us is whether or not that's a fault in our wiring or if you in that moment are experiencing the real presence of a spiritual reality that science cannot describe. He said science can't tell us that and science never will. He said and there is reason to believe, there is good scientific reason to believe that when we feel the presence of God, when we have spiritual experiences, we are experiencing something that is real, that actually actually exists. For example, for example, he said, consider the fact that more than two out of every three Americans has had some sort of a spiritual experience at some point in their lives. More than two out of every three Americans will tell you, at some moment in my life, I experienced a presence, I sensed a spirit, I thought I saw the hand of God moving around me, working in my life. When two out of every three people has had an experience, that stops looking like a fault in our brains, and it starts looking more like a feature. And there are, there are scientists who believe that actually when they look at the brain, it looks like our brains are designed to have religious experiences. There is a part of our brain called the temporal lobe that seems to crave contact with a spiritual reality beyond what our eyes can see. The question is, why would our brains be wired this way? Why would we have this desire for a deeper spiritual reality if that deeper spiritual reality did not exist? Think of it this way. We have eyes because light is real. We have ears because sound exists. If the deeper spiritual reality does not exist, if God is not real, then why do we have a temporal lobe of the brain? I have to end on a, a note of humility today. I have to stand before you and say that the answer to the question I ask in the bulletin, can science prove whether or not God exists? The answer to that question is no. Science can't prove that God is real and science can't disprove that God is real. 
And the truth is, if you want to be a skeptic and if you want to be an unbeliever, then science will give you plenty of ammunition for those conversations when your friends want to talk to you about God. Plenty of ways to poke holes in their thought systems, plenty of ways to poke holes in their religious beliefs. Science will give you plenty, plenty of ammunition. But if, on the other hand, you're like me, if you want to believe that God is real, if you hope one day to find out for certain that we are not alone, if you want to get in contact with a deeper spiritual reality, then the good news is there is plenty of reason in science, there are plenty of reasons in this world, there are plenty of reasons in our own daily experiences to let us know that God is real, that there is something more than what our eyes can see. And that brings me back to where I started today. And when I told you about my friend who had the seizure there at camp, I, I didn't tell you the whole story. There's something I, I left out. Now, that was the first time we'd ever had a counselor have a seizure during a week of, of camp. There was one other thing we were doing that night that we had never done before. That night, we decided that it might be fun for our, our evening program to let the campers get up close to a couple of emergency vehicles. We thought that it would be a neat experience for them to meet some rescue emergency personnel, some of the heroes who shine a light in some of our darkest moments. And so, that night we had a fire truck at camp and we had an ambulance there at camp and less than a hundred yards away when our counselor started having his seizure we had a fire squad and an EMT crew they were on him almost before he hit the ground the moment he started having that seizure the EMT personnel were surrounding him giving him professional and, and competent care and in that moment as we gathered around all of the campers and started to pray for our friend who was convulsing on the ground in that moment we, we sensed the presence of God among us. In that moment, we said, can you believe that the very first time we invite an ambulance crew to come to camp, this, this is how they get used by God. Now, I cannot tell you for certain that God brought them to camp that night. And if you want to believe that it was a coincidence, and if you want to believe that it was just one of those things, I can't tell you that you're wrong. I can't prove that God was with us that night. But I can tell you this, as we were praying, and as I was watching those people take care of our friend who just a few minutes later, because of the care he received, was up and back to himself and doing fine. I can tell you this, in that moment, I felt a presence. In that moment, my temporal lobe was hyperactive. In that moment, I believe, I believe that God was with us. If you want to believe that God is with us, if you want to believe that there really is someone walking beside us, if you want to experience the presence of one whom we cannot see, then there is plenty in science. There is plenty in this world. There are plenty in our lives. God, God will give us enough. God will give us everything we need to keep on believing. Let's pray. God, we want to believe. We want to believe that you are real. We want to believe that you are with us. We want to believe that you are deep and unbreakable and never-ending love. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you at work among us. Give us ears to hear your voice. Open our hearts that we might feel the love that you feel for this world. God, we pray that you would give us not evidence, don't give us proof, don't give us scientific certainty. God, all that we're asking for today is that you would give us enough to keep on believing. In the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.